As I was preparing my message this week, I came across an article on ChristianityToday.com. And in this article, uh, it was written by a woman named Amber Penny. I don't know anything about her, but listen to what she wrote of her experience. She said this, she said, I tried my hardest to live out what I believed. I had a quiet time every morning. I prayed often. I memorized Scripture. I, I led a small Bible study group. I never missed a Sunday or the Sunday school or church. But it never seemed like I was doing enough. And I kicked myself for it. What would it take to please God? What else would I need to do? You can sense even the anguish of her heart, can you not? So desperately wanting to please God and so engaged in everything that she could to please God, whether that was study on her own or prayer or church. And, and yet, as is often the case with any legalist, you ever, met, you ever meet one, you can always say, are you sure that's enough? And then maybe they'll do more. You say, are you sure that's enough? Because you never quite can get there. And I'm, I'm not even sure she was a legalist in, in any way, but there was an ache in her heart just always trying to please God. And she said, it never seemed like I was doing enough. And the question she asked is a good question really for us to ask this day. What does it take to please God? To take a quiet time every day? To take praying every day all, all throughout the day to please, please God? Does it take Scripture memory? Does it take leading Bible studies? Does it take Sunday school attendance or church attendance? What does it take? Well, our text this morning answers these type of questions. The title of my message this morning is How to Please God. Coming from one verse of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. We're going to focus our attention on a single verse. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 6. I invite you to turn open in your Bibles there. We do have new Bibles in our pews. If you've not brought one today, so they are there. If you don't have a Bible, take one home. It is yours. It's our gift to you. But before I read this, I do want to ask you directly, do you want to please God? Good, good. There ought to be something within the people of God that says, yes, we want to please God. And as I trust you come here this morning to a church, of course you want to please God. Pleasing God is in the heart of every Christian. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home, meaning um, alive, or absent, meaning away, dead, we have our ambition to be pleasing to Him. That is, whether we live in this life, whether we live in the life to come, we have our ambition so as to please the Lord. And that, that's, that's such a right attitude and such a right heart. I'm glad you responded that way because it's the heart of every child that, that's in a right relationship with their parents. The, the child will want so much to please his daddy or please his mommy. And so likewise, children of God, that's how we ought to be. Deep down desire we ought to have to please our Lord. So how do you please the Lord? Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 tells us how. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Now this is a, a verse that I think many of you know well. I remember first time I really came across this verse, I was a senior in college. And um, another friend of mine had, had this thing called the Navigator Topical Memory System. And uh, so I wrote out these 70 verses or so on our uh, note cards on um, 
you know, I'm gonna, index cards, I guess you call them. And over the next weeks and months, before we went to church in the morning, we just challenged each other. And this was one of those verses that has never left me. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. Now, the context here of verse 6 is verse 5, which spoke about Enoch, who was pleasing to God. Look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. Why? Why did he not see death? Why was he just taken up to be with God? Because he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And so now the question comes, well, how do you please God? And the answer is in verse 6. explains how Enoch was pleasing God. But verse 6 isn't just applicable only to Enoch. It's a universal statement. True at all times, for all peoples. This is how the Old Testament saints please God. This is how we please God today as well. And in this sense, it's a universal statement. It's a bit like verse 1, in which a universal description of faith is right there. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is what sees beyond the here and now. Faith is what has the, that has the confidence of things that we don't see. In some regards, verse 1 is similar, right? And so it describes believing in that which isn't seen, believing in Him which is invisible, and anticipating and hoping of this reward that, that comes, seeking of Him who promises. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. We see in this verse fundamentally what it takes to please God. You want to please God? Here it is. You must believe. You must have faith because without faith, it's impossible to please Him. That's said in a negative way. You might say it positively like this. Faith is necessary to please God. You want to please God? Well, you need faith. You need to believe. You need to trust in our Savior. That's the testimony of everyone in chapter 11. Abel had faith and Enoch had faith and Noah had faith and Abraham had faith and Sarah had faith and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph all had faith and Moses and even his parents as mentioned he had faith. And so also did Rahab have faith. Every single time it's just tying there. This is the hall of faith. These are the people that please God by faith. Abel pleased God by offering a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Enoch pleased God by walking with God. By faith, Noah pleased God by building an ark in reverence to the Lord. By faith, Abraham believed God by going out to a place which he was received for inheritance, even not knowing where he was going. By faith, Sarah pleased God and thus receiving ability to conceive. By faith, Abraham even also believed God by offering up Isaac, his only begotten son. By faith, Moses... Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph all pleased God by blessing their children. By faith, Moses' parents pleased God as they hid him for three months. By faith, Moses pleased God as he forsook the treasures of Egypt looking for the reward of God. By faith, Rahab pleased God as she received the spies in peace. She wasn't destroyed. And just you work through Hebrews 11, you can see all these people, by faith they did it. By faith, It's because by faith is how we always please God. But it's very interesting, if you look down to verse 39, there's an explicit statement there that speaks about these people who were pleasing to God. It says, all these, 
and we might even change that for our purposes here, all these have gained approval through their faith, even though they didn't receive what was promised, is what verse 39 says. All these people have gained approval through their faith. Here we see God looking down upon all these people with a, a critical eye, just, just looking at Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, and just saying, what, do, are they going to please me or not? And what's He looking for? He's not looking for what they do. He's looking for their hearts and whether they believe or not. In fact, verse 39 doesn't say how they all gained approval by their works and the wonderful things in which they did. I mean, verse 39 doesn't And all these have gained approval through their wondrous acts and deeds. Does it say that? No, in fact, look, it's very explicit of, of how it is that they gain the approval of God. It, it says, and all of these having gained approval, how? Through their faith. That's how they please God, is they please God through their faith. In other words, faith is the means of pleasing God. But you might say, well, well, didn't they do wonderful works? Yeah, they did. I mean, if you just think about the works that they did, it's amazing. They, they worshipped God from faith and they walked with God. And they witnessed for God as Noah did. He built his ark for 120 years. They obeyed God. They chose the path of God rather than the easy path. They conquered kingdoms by faith. They performed acts of righteousness by faith. They shut the mouths of lions by faith, like Daniel. They quenched the power of fire by faith, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They put foreign armies to flight by faith. They were persecuted by faith. They lived above this world. In fact, it even says in verse 38 that men of whom the world was not worthy. Why weren't they worthy? Because they, they like lived in the celestial. They were people who lived by faith. They did wonderful things. And was God pleased with the things they did? Absolutely He was. But verse 39 is very intentional. At the end of it, lest we think that they gained approval through the things that they had done, He says, no, all these having gained approval through their faith. You want to please God? Trust God. It's the message of our text this morning. It's what verse 6 says. It's the message of all of Hebrews 11. See, it's not the things we do for God that ultimately pleases God. Bible reading by itself doesn't please God. Prayer by itself doesn't please God. Sacrifice or service to others by itself does not please God. Because you can do all those things and it can be an abomination to the Lord. It says the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. That's external obedience, but being wicked in your life, that's not pleasing to the Lord. The unbelieving prayer is not heard by God, but God hears the prayer of faith. He hears the cry of belief. And to please God, you must have faith. Or as Romans 14.23 says, whatever is not from faith is sin. It's not from faith, it's sin. In this way, faith is a bit like love. Maybe you can see the comparison here. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned and do not have love, it profits me nothing. 
You see the priority of love there too, right? Our text is focusing upon faith, but you might say it like this. Hebrews 11, verse 6, in the mood of 1 Corinthians 13, if I worship the Lord with all my heart and all my soul and sing loudly, but have not faith, I'm nothing. If I obey the Lord and reading the Bible and trying to do everything that God tells me to do, if I have not faith, I'm nothing. And if I shut the mouths of lions, and if I put foreign armies to flight, but if I have not faith, I'm nothing and God is not pleased. Because if you don't have faith, it is impossible to please God. It's not just hard to do. It's not just really, really difficult to do. It's impossible to please God. It cannot be done. You cannot please the Lord. You must have faith to please the Lord. Well, the question then comes, what about all the, the wondrous works that they did here in Hebrews chapter 11? Was God pleased with those? Where do they come from? Where, where do they fit? Steve, what you're explaining. Are they like, like nothing? I don't think they're nothing. But I think the answer to that really question is that they flow out of faith. They're an expression of faith. It's the thrust of the repeated words here, right? Almost 20 times. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. That by faith it's the way that things are done that pleases God. So you want to please God? Have faith in God. And let everything that you do flow from that faith and be empowered by that faith. Let's go back to the quote I began my message with. Amber Penny was seeking to please God with her religious activity but was finding it useless and futile. She continued in this article. She said, One day I asked my pastor these questions and he had some encouraging words. If you're a Christian, God is pleased with you. Period. End of sentence. It sounds, the pastor said to Amber, like you're looking for your, at your relationship with God as a to-do list. And he said, that's what's stealing your joy. Now, don't quit having your quiet times or leading your Bible study. Those things are evidence of a changed heart. But you mustn't think that God's approval rests on how well and how often you do them. Okay, do you see the, the difference there? And how subtle we can, we can slip into doing righteous deeds and become like the Pharisees and think that we have merited something before God. We've not. I think just even picking this apart, the, the pastor said, if you're a Christian, God is pleased with you. If you believe and trust in Jesus Christ, your salvation, you don't have to worry about God's approval at all. Because His approval is there. He's gone on record to say, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. It means that, that God has lifted the condemnation from us who believe. And if the condemnation is lifted, we don't need to do anything to be justified. Because we're justified as a gift by faith in Christ Jesus, Romans 3. That's like the best news of all. In fact, it's such good news, we have a difficult time believing it. It's the essence of the Gospel, though. By faith, we are made completely right because Jesus, by faith, we trust in Him. He bore our sins in His body on the cross. If you believe in Christ, God is pleased with you. That doesn't mean you go out and sin as you please. 
That'd be inconsistent with your profession of faith. You can read Romans 6 about that. What then? Shall we sin that grace might abound? May it never be. But if you died to sin, how should you still live in it? It's not living in sin. But if you do live in sin, it demonstrates you don't believe. So I just say to you all that you pursue God and, and love Him and love others, but do so not to gain merit before God, but do so because you love the One who died for you. That's why we read our Bible. That's why we pray. Because that's how God speaks to us. That's how we speak to Him. That's why we serve others and we give ourselves because He's given all for us. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And He Himself gave Himself for all that all might give themselves for Him. Died for all that we might die for Him. It's all for Him. It's not for us. He died for us that we give our whole life to Him. But not meritorious in any way. But trusting God. C.J. Mahaney helps us at this point. He recommends that uh, when you're finished reading your Bible or having any sort of devotional exercise, at the end of it, he says you should take your Bible and you should close it and you should offer a quick prayer to God and say something to the effect of this, God, I I thank You for what I've learned through what I've read. And may You help me to apply it in every way. But I want to declare right here and now that this practice of reading my Bible and praying to you is not in any way a means of forgiveness or justification or acceptance. Really, it is an expression, God, of my need and dependence upon you. I can never through my obedience merit what only Christ could achieve in light of your holiness and my sinfulness. We should do that. Short prayer like that. Every time after we pray, God, I'm not, I'm not righteous because I read my Bible and prayed today. I read and prayed because I need You. I'm not seeking to justify myself. God, I can never do that before You. What a great prayer to pray. So if you do that in your Bible reading, listen, it'll carry over to other areas of Christian life. God, this morning I spent time praying, but my praying isn't to gain Your approval. Rather, it's an expression and my dependence upon You. God, I was able to serve someone today and I gave of myself to this person. But I don't do it, O oh God, to earn my favor or to be religious or righteous in the sight of others. I, I'm thankful to be merely Your hands and feet upon this earth to care for others made in Your image. That's the prayer we pray. Because without faith, it's impossible to please Him. That's the prayer of faith. It says, God, help me in this. And such is a life to which the writer of Hebrews calling us this morning. He says, embrace your redemption and respond accordingly. Titus 2.14 Jesus Christ gave Himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. You see what He does? God redeemed us and purified us from all the bad deeds we've done reconciled us, and then made us so that we can go and do all of our profitable good deeds, which God prepared beforehand, Ephesians 2.10, that we should walk in them. I would really encourage you all to think about your security in your relationship with God so that all of your religious activity doesn't become works of a to-do list. You know, A good example of that is my dad. I mean, he's not, he's not here today. Um, but I just knew throughout the years, Dad just accepted me and embraced me. And I was a, a pretty um, driven kind of guy, um, academically, uh, athletically, uh, socially. Just, well, I, I was very much like that. But you know, even in all my athletic stuff, my dad never 
put a standard or something I had to reach or obtain academically. He never gave me a standard of some kind of acceptance that I had to get there. And, and, it, and it, it made me how I did things then, just um, out of love or desire to achieve and make him even happy. But it, I knew he was going to be happy regardless of where it was. Parents, I encourage you even to deal gracefully with your kids as is appropriately those ways as well. Because that's how God deals with us. He, by faith in Him, completely reconciled, completely justified, and then everything we do is out of thanks and love to God. That's what it means to, to have faith to seek the approval of God. Well, there are two aspects of faith in our text and two aspects of this faith form my outline this morning. The priority of faith, we've seen that. But here it is. How do you please God? First of all, you need to believe in His reality. Verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him because, here it is, here is the necessity of faith in pleasing God. For because he who comes to God must believe that He is. It's the first part of faith. It's believing in the existence of God. It's believing in the reality of God. Do you believe in the existence of God? Trust we're church. We do. But down through the ages and centuries, theologians have put forth many arguments for the existence of God. They call them proofs. I learned them in my systematic theology class in seminary. You learn them in any kind of class if you want to apologetics, that kind of thing. There's a cosmological argument for God. Everything that we see in the universe has a cause. Right? It's Newton's laws. For every cause, there's an opposite cause. But something's got to be pushing. Something's got to be moving. Whether it's a burn, whether it's a push, something, there's always some cause. And they just got to think back, well, for everything there was a cause, well, what, what was the first cause? What created the universe in the first place? Cosmological argument. There must have been a first cause. Who's the cause? God is the cause. The teleological argument argues from order and design and end. And design really implies a designer. Uh, design implies a, an intelligent purpose for everything created. You say, who's the intelligent purpose? It goes back. It's got to be God as the intelligent purpose. The moral argument. All of us know what's right or wrong. There's something within every child. You don't have to teach a child what's right or wrong. They know what's right or wrong. Now you need to teach them to do the right rather than the wrong because that's our sinful heart wants to do the wrong. But... But we know that. And you say, where did that come from? It came from God. It came from our Creator. It must be the source. So that's where you begin. You want to you please God? Begin with the existence of God. You believe that He is. Because you can't please Him if you don't believe in Him. That's kind of what the writer is saying here. Well, recently I've been reading a book by Tim Keller. It's called uh, The Reason for God puts forth just in a, in a great way reasons for the Christian faith and, and really deals with all the objections that people have. And in the area where he talks about how God being the, the Creator, I really appreciate his pro- approach because he didn't call these arguments proofs like a lot of people call them. He called them clues instead. Because in and of themselves, um, Keller at least admits that, that people aren't inherently convinced by any of those arguments. It's not like you, you, you talk about the cosmological argument for the earth and that there's got to be a cause and who is that bad cause? It's got to be God. That doesn't convince anybody. But here's what it does do. Though it gives you a hint and gives you a clue. You say, hmm, hmm, you're right. There's got to be a cause. What is the cause? 
and, and you, you think about the design of the universe and you just say, hmm, you know, who is designing this? Or, or, or you think about the sense of morality and you just go, yeah, that's right, we all, we all do have a sense of morality. We're, we're different than the animals. Why? For the image of God. Oh, hmm. You start thinking about it. Yeah. The laws of nature. Where did they come from? Why is the gravitational field strength the constant which works perfectly? What, what about the speed of light and electromagnetism? And, uh, how, are they, how are they related? Dif- hmm. You start thinking about that. Or the fact that there's beauty. You go, hmm. Talks about one who's beautiful. And, and what Keller says is this. All these are clues that God exists. And maybe in and of themselves someone might be, not be convinced, but when you put all of them together and they all stack up and they all point to the existence of God, he says, then he has something. He can show and just touch people's heart. And say, you know what? God exists. And the overwhelming evidence of all these clues that all point to God, you say, yep, he exists. Well, as much as these sorts of things might address the issue in our land today, when we have many professed atheists across our land, or agnostics even, oh, I don't know. You start piling up some of these clues and they might know. I don't think this really was an issue of the original readers. I mean, think about them. They were Jewish people. First century Jews who had the Scriptures. They looked at them as authoritative. That's why Hebrews is filled with so much Scripture. The evidence of God really wasn't an issue for them. Or was it? Start thinking about this and... I think it was. What led Israel to complain after they left the bondage of slavery? But a lack of faith and unbelief in God. What led Israel to forsake their gods and pursue other idols? But an unbelief in their God. What led the wicked kings of Israel and Judah to lead people into covenants with other countries and to embrace their gods and their idolatrous practices? but an unbelief in God. What led the Pharisees to live lives so contrary to God's heart, but an unbelief in God? I mean, the Pharisees lived so much on the human level. Yeah, they said they prayed, but I think it was filled with unbelief for their heart. Within the life of Israel, why was there so much of a disconnect between their creed and their conduct? I think it's because their lack of faith in God and the existence of God and and sadly, the same happens today. Someone has coined the term, who knows who it was, practical atheist. It says many Christians oftentimes, though on Sundays they might profess to God when they actually live, God is like not even in their mind, not even in their scope. But you want to please God, you need to have Him. We may profess a faith in God, but our lives often deny it. Maybe it's clear sometimes and maybe other times it's not. If if you know what I'm talking about, I know I feel the pull sometimes. It's a pastor. Boy, is God there? He's invisible. I can't see Him. I've seen enough proofs of Him. I'm convinced. I was recently talking with a gal this week. Professed to believe everything that I believed. Everything I believed. And yet her life was not reflecting it at all. She'd grown up religious, still professed to believe what she was taught. Yet the way she's living now, denying the very existence of God Himself. What does she need? She needs to believe the reality of God because if she does, her life will change. 
Because a genuine belief in the reality of God changes the way that you live. A life that believes in the reality of God is a life that pleases the Lord. And maybe the sense here of verse 6 is this. Rather than just believing in God, believe that He is, maybe put it just a little bit differently, might bring it home a little bit. Without faith it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe Him. Now, that's not what the text says, but there's a big difference between believing in God and believing God. But when it says believing that He is, I think what it means is believing in the one true God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the thrice holy God, the omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient God. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about believing that He is, believing that the true God really is we sang this morning, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. And uh, Bob Coughlin wrote this about this hymn. He says, just kind of looking through the words, he says, this hymn combines compelling images and a stunning crescendo of God's attributes to confront us with a vast difference between God and His creatures. In the first verse alone, we worship God as immortal, invisible, Almighty, holy, and veiled from our eyes in unapproachable light. So when you believe that God is and the reality of God, He's not just talking about reality of a God, He's talking about reality of the God, the Jehovah God. You must believe in that reality. And then, some of the implications from that. How can a vile sinner approach a God who's a consuming fire whom no man has seen nor can see. There's only one way. It's the cross of Christ. We need to believe in the reality of God as He is. He's revealed Himself in Jesus Christ to us. So you want to please God? Believe in the reality of God and everything He's revealed Himself to be. Second point this morning. You want to please God? Believe in His reward. Not just His reality, but also His reward. And Larry Polly would be proud of my alliteration, so for those of you who know what I mean. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and secondly, that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. Fundamental to our faith in Christ is the reality that there is a reward awaiting those who follow Christ. There's a reward in this present life. There's a reward in the future life. Proverbs spell out the rewards in this life. Like peace and riches and honor and life and safety. Listen to a few Proverbs. Think about it. There's a reward in this life of following God. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, when you believe in the Lord, trusting the Lord, fearing the Lord, walking with the Lord, Proverbs 16, 7 continues, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. There is a sense where you follow God in this life Blessings will come. Rewards will come in this life. Proverbs 22, verse 4. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. In the fear of the Lord, there's strong confidence and His children will have refuge. It's present life, but but listen, the, the rewards that we receive here pale in insignificance compared to the rewards that we'll receive in heaven. The greater reward will be in the life to come. Darren read for us earlier the the, the parable of the man who finds a treasure hidden in the field. And you know what he does. He finds it. He buries it again. He goes and sells everything to get the treasure. Why? 
Because the kingdom of heaven is worth giving up all that you have in this life to gain far greater in the next. The very next verse, Darren read, Matthew 13, verse 45, Jesus tells the merchant who's, who's, who's wise about pearls and he goes to find fine pearls and he found one of great value. What does he do? He goes and sells everything that he has in order to buy that one pearl of great price because this is what's going to make him rich and wealthy. Again, the same thing. You give up all your life on earth and you'll gain that one pearl you really want. So what Jesus says, right? he wants to come after me, must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Right? Die to yourself and live to God because there is a, a reward in heaven that we have. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said this. Right? We, we looked at this in our small group Friday. We'll look at it again next Friday and I'm not sure where Darren and Phil are, but they'll get to this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Right? You, you catch this out? Jesus wants for us to have a great treasure. And so He tells us where the best investment is. It's not here on earth because moth and rust will destroy everything you put here on earth. Rather have your treasure in heaven. Jesus wants us to have a great treasure. But He calls us to store it away. As Randy Alcorn says, we can't keep our treasure now, but we can send it ahead. That's the reward that Hebrews 11.6 is talking about. That's a rewarder of those who seek Him. You seek Him by faith and God will reward. There's a treasure for us. And Jesus, when He called His followers to Himself, He guaranteed that any sacrifice you make would be worth it. When Peter said, following the rich young ruler, Jesus told him to sell everything and the rich young ruler then went away because he had much wealth. Peter then said to Jesus, we've, told, we've, we've left everything and followed you. What will it be for us? And here's what Jesus said to them. Matthew 19, 28-29. Truly I say to you that you have followed Me in the regeneration. You who have followed Me in the regeneration when the Son of Man was sitting on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There's a promise of Jesus. You follow Him, you'll sit on a throne. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for My sake receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. It speaks about how much greater the reward is there than what we have here. Our best life isn't now. Our best life is later, for sure. And, and catch the heart of Jesus. He says, pursuing the Lord, following Him is something which is better for you. It's better for us to store up treasures in heaven. Don't ever think that God uses you as a pawn in His grand design at your expense. Don't, don't ever think that He's telling you to deny something so that God is more glorious and you're like suffering more. That's not how God works. If He calls for you to suffer, if He calls for you to give, if He calls for you to store up treasure in heaven, it's because He knows that's better for you. He looks out for our good. God cares for us. He wants the best for us. And I just say this, you will be most happy when you're seeking your reward. You'll be most happy when you're seeking your reward. I love the way Charles Spurgeon put it. He said this, If any man pleases God, by faith, right? He does that which contributes most to his own temporal and eternal welfare. 
Man cannot please God without bringing to himself a great amount of happiness. Think about that. Man cannot please God without bringing to himself a great amount of happiness. For if any man pleases God, it's because God accepts him as his son, gives him the blessings of adoption, pours upon him the bounties of his grace, makes him a blessed man in this life, and ensures him a crown of everlasting life, which he shall wear and which shall shine with unfading luster when the wreaths of earth's glory have all been melted away. Catch what he's saying? You follow God, God will bless you in eternity. But, on the other hand, if a man does not please God, doesn't believe, follows his own way, he inevitably brings upon himself sorrow and suffering in this life. Sin brings sorrow and suffering. Do you say amen? He puts a worm and a rottenness in the core of all his joys. He fills his death pillow with thorns and he supplies the eternal fire with faggots of flames which shall forever consume him what we do and we, we sin and, and choose our own way rather than God choosing God and His way by faith. He that pleases God is through divine grace journeying onward to the ultimate reward with all those who love and fear God. But he who is ill-pleasing to God must, for Scripture is declared, be banished from the presence of God and consequently from the enjoyment of happiness. You want to please God? You want, you want what's best for your soul? What's best for your soul is to please God. So believe in His reality. Believe in His reward. That's our own good. That's our eternal happiness. And those in Hebrews 11 grasp it. Look at, look at, look at um, Abraham, verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for his inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. God called him in order of the Chaldeans. He said, Abraham, go. I've chosen you. You're going to make you a choice nation. I want you to go to this land. He didn't know where it was. He just obeyed God and went. It's faith in action. God says, go. You say, okay. God says, go. I'm going to give you land. Abraham didn't know where the land was. Rather, he went by faith, but he had the conviction of things not seen. And according to verse 10, even it shows that he was even looking beyond the land of Canaan. It says, he was looking for the city which has foundations as architect and builder as God. I think that's a reference of heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for the city that God would build him. And then consider all those who died in faith. Look at verse 13. It's talking about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. All these died in faith, okay? They died believing without receiving the promises in this earthly life. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they said, well, the promises have come, <coughs> but they didn't receive them here on the earth, but they, they kind of saw them from a distance. And then... He explains this, right? Because Abraham died without fully receiving all the promises, and so did Sarah. But they saw them and confessed, strangers and exiles on the earth. We're just, we're just strangers here. Our true home is in heaven. He says in verse 14, For those who say things like this, make it clear they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had gone out, i.e., Ur, Babylon, they would have an opportunity to return. They said, yeah, we're seeking our city. And they could have gone back there. But he says, no, but as it is, they desire a better city. What kind of city? He says, a heavenly one, verse 16. Therefore, God is pleased with them. God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. And boy, when we get to Revelation 12, we're going to see this city, this unbreakable kingdom. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God the judge of all, and the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Just describing a, a heavenly city that we'll have someday. But catch it that that Abraham was looking for the reward. Abraham was looking forward. He was looking to obtain something by faith. God says he, he would have those things. So he said, okay, I'll look forward for those things. Now consider Moses, 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called son of Pharaoh's daughter. He, of course, was adopted by Pharaoh. He was the son of Pharaoh. He said, I refuse that. Why? What did he do? Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Because, look at 26, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. The reproaches of Christ are greater treasures than Egypt. You guys know Egypt, what he's talking about here? He's talking about ancient Egypt. You've seen the pyramids? It's pretty wealthy, wealthy and rich to be able to make that as a tomb for the king, for the pharaoh. The, the riches of Egypt were vast. And he says, the reproaches of Christ are greater riches than that. It's like, are you crazy? The only way for that to make sense is if you carry that through death to the afterworld. Because, what it says in verse 26, he was looking to the reward. He's looking for the reward that God gives to those who believe. And the reward that God gives far outlasts and far outshines the glory of Egypt, even its glory. You've got to see these Old Testament saints lived this way to have a, have a heart beyond just this life, a reward for eternity. And, and it wasn't just the Old Testament saints. Even those in the days of uh, the Hebrews was written in the first century. They experienced it as well. Look back at chapter 10, verse 34. You showed sympathy to the prisoners... These are prisoners, uh, not who are thieves and robbers and murderers. No, these are prisoners who professed the name of Christ and were in jail by the government. And you willingly identified with them by visiting them and helping them, showing sympathy to them. And thus you identify yourself as a believer. And thus what happened next made sense. And you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Think about what's going on here. Politically, the, the, the Roman government was against the Christians. They were Christians. They were standing firm for their faith in Christ. And, and, and people came, the government came and took away their property. And what did they do? They claimed their rights. Fight against them? No. They joyfully accepted it. You say, that doesn't make sense. The only way that makes sense is if there's something better they're living for. And that's exactly what it says, right? You know that you have for yourselves a better possession lasting. What's the better possession lasting one? It's the reward that God is giving to us for believing in Him. We need to believe His reality. We need to believe in His reward. And, and then look at the reward terminology here in verse 35 and verse 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. 
your confidence is that the aspect of your faith that's going to continue to endure even amidst the persecution that comes. So don't throw that away because your faith enduring in the confidence of God has a great reward. Verse 36, you have need of endurance. That is, you have need of sustaining faith because sustaining faith is genuine faith. You have need of enduring in your faith so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. There it is. Even the people of the first century receiving what was promised. The life that pleases the Lord is a life that looks for God's reward. The life that pleases the Lord is the life that looks for what God has promised. And so my final question of application to you this morning is this. Are you seeking Him? Are you seeking Him? He's the rewarder of those who seek Him. That's how verse 6 ends. There's a reward for those who seek the Lord. Now, now notice what they're seeking. They're seeking the Lord. Not seeking to be busy in activity. Not seeking to build God's kingdom by themselves. Rather, seeking the Lord. Those are the people that God rewards. Several translations make this seeking intensive. New International Version says it this way. He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. The New King James Version says it like this. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Earnestly, diligently. And then the Amplified Bible, which brings the nuances of the Greek text. And this is, by the way, a, a correct nuance. Zeteo just means to seek. And oftentimes in Greek, if you add a preposition on the front, you intensify it. And this word is ek zeteo. To seek out. Or to, to really go at it. And the Amplified Bible says it this way. He's a rewarder of those who earnestly and diligently seek Him. <clears throat> Legitimate translations entirely. And so I ask you this morning, are you earnestly seeking Him? Are you diligently seeking Him? Does that characterize your life? You say, well, let's look at someone's life. Are they earnestly, diligently seeking the Lord? That's what you need to do to please the Lord. And I would say, do that in your faith and trust to the Lord. Tell you, please the Lord. Just got to pursue Him and seek Him and go after Him. And you know what that's about. I mean, just think of any, anything you want, whether it's an athlete seeking in his great diligence so as to be ready for his competition. Or you think of your pirate stories and the pirates going out seeking their buried treasure. Or you think about the workaholic who's seeking his success, right? Diligently pursuing 24-7 every day just as one goal to be able to get and achieve what he wants. That's what we ought to be with God. If we want to please God, that's how we need to be. Seek the Lord. Pursue Him by faith. If we want to please the Lord, believe in His reality. Believe in His reward. And seek Him with all your heart. So let's pray to the Lord. Father, I thank You for Your clarity in Your Word. Thank you that you tell us how to how to please you. Uh, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would stir our hearts afresh by just the power of your word um, to be those who, God, are convinced of your reality. I've seen you. I've seen you work. God, are not pulled away by arguments of secularism. I'm not pulled away by the doubts of of others. God, may we believe that you are a rewarder.
Think of how many Scriptures here speak to put the reward in front of us. So it's not a, a reward even that we earn. It's a reward that you just give for being faithful believers to you. I was thinking even of the believers here in, in Hebrews 11 who were stoned and sawn in two, who were killed. It's not like they did a lot. They didn't do anything, God. They merely continued steadfastly in their faith. And yet, God, You will reward them. You reward the martyrs. We see that in Revelation. And You reward those who continue steadfastly until the end, trusting You. And so may that be the, the sort of people we are. Thank You, Lord, for your, your grace to us. I pray You would work that in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.